Difference makers all face the same question. How can we initiate, drive and sustain change in any of its forms, whether it be social change, behaviour change, policy change or, at its most challenging, system change? Massive Small Stories presents lessons from all over the world, amplifying how amazing people have done amazing things throughout their careers. It celebrates those who have overcome all odds by pursuing their purpose in life and have influenced change for all of us. These are our massive small agents of change. Hello, my name's Richard Ingleton. Welcome to the second in the Massive Small podcast in which I get to introduce and chat to Liam Black, who is an author of How to Lead with Purpose, also a gloves-off mentor. We'll be finding out what that is, I'm sure, and a social entrepreneur. So welcome, Liam. Great. It's lovely to be here. Nice to see you. And for I the think, second time. For, yes, and I, or I should say we've met once before briefly, so I know very little about you. Um, perhaps you'd just give us an introduction into maybe how you became a social entrepreneur. What was the journey from little Liam to social entrepreneur Liam? Little Liam to social entrepreneur Liam. So little Liam uh, was uh, brought up in an Irish Catholic working class immigrant family, um, first of all in Ireland and then ending up in Reading uh, because of the M4 corridor when all the Irish were building the motorways and we settled there and not Slough or Bristol. Bristol might have been nicer. Anyway, it, we didn't. And so brought up in a very sort of traditional Catholic family um, and as the oldest son of the uh, family, one of the aspirations that my mum had for me was to be a priest of all things. And uh, I thought that I was going to be a priest, or wanted to be a priest. I went to a Christian Brothers school where lots of um, uh, Catholic priest orders targeted us. I almost said grooming, but that would be completely the wrong word. Well, maybe not, but I won't use that. Targeted us to recruit us into the ranks of the priesthood. And I was really taken with a missionary order called the White Fathers, so-called because they wear these white robes in West Africa. Um, and was set on doing that and finishing my A-levels and then going to the seminary. Um, but I missed the uh, recruitment that year. They couldn't take me into the seminary. Those were the days when there were lots of young lads who wanted to become priests. And so I went to uh, a Catholic college in London just to fill in a bit of time before going to the seminary in Easter 1980 um, and didn't like college very much. did theology in English. So if we run out of things to talk about on social entrepreneurship... Do you want to hear what my specialist subject was? I, I'm, I'm desperate. You're desperate yeah. to find out. It was the praxis of John of the Cross, who was a medieval mystic. So if we run out of things to talk about, we can come Maybe back to that. Maybe we should just go straight to medieval mysticism yeah, and, and a, forget everything else. Very interesting people. Anyway, he was Teresa of Avila's um, uh, mentor. But anyway, maybe that's another podcast. Anyway, uh, went to college, hated it. I uh, had a big chip on my shoulder as this working class kid surrounded by all these middle class kids who I thought had all got their act together and anyway hated it I was sitting in the refectory at the end of the first term talking to the guy who recruited me to play in the basketball team and uh, he said you're going to come back next term Liam and I said nah I don't think so um, I don't like it here I'm just going to go and work on a building site before I go to the seminary and then this young woman walked in um, and I said who is that and he said that's Maggie Sheehan you've got no chance uh, with her she was a third year and I was a, a, a humble first year and I thought, well, you know, we'll give it a go. So I came back the next term just to ask her out. And if she if she said yes, I would have 
and said, gone with her. And if she said no, I'd have gone to be a priest. That's how deep my vocation was. <laughs> and thank God she said yes. And so that was the end of my sort of road to Rome. I sometimes say to Maggie, uh, we've been together now, married for 44 years. Uh, I sometimes say to her that, you know, she hadn't lured me away with her feminine wiles from uh, the road to Rome. I could now be a cardinal, maybe the Archbishop of Westminster or something like that, which she laughs at derisively. So that, that so I then we then worked as overseas as volunteers for a couple of years. I came back, I ended up in Liverpool as a community organiser. So the, the sort of religious element went, but the drive to change the world stayed. So let's just uh, just go back to the seminary and go back to this young man. Yeah. Can you remember, was it, was it um, a, a religious calling, a desire to do something for others? Where was it rooted yeah, in? Yeah, I think it was, it was if you'd asked me then... So if you, if you were able to get the sort of 19-year-old Liam to one side and say, why do you want to do this? I think I would have told you it's rooted in a deep Catholic faith and I, I'm being called by God in order to do good work in the world. And I think that's why the mission, you know, going off to Africa and doing some good in the world. Now, at this advanced age, looking back, I think that was certainly part of it. But actually, what I think was really going on was me looking for identity uh, I grew up in, as I said, in a sort of single, with a single mum, uh, very, in many ways, quite a difficult upbringing. And being a priest, I thought, would give me status, would give me a position in the world. And I think that there was a lot of that going on. And I've, it's interested me over the years as, as, as the Catholic faith thing has fallen away, but that sense of obligation, that sense of wanting to do some good in the world is still there. And if you'd asked me in my 30s and 40s, if you'd said to me, hey, Liam, uh, that's what's going on here. You're being driven by this. I said, no, 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 no. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a political motivation now. But in my dotage, I kind of see how that um, teaching of the church about uh, making a difference, leaving something behind you better than you found, it's rooted in that, even though the theology and the belief system has fallen away. Yeah. So th there's the doing good and, and the association with God. Then Maggie came along and sort of... Showed became, me, no, showed became, me became, another missionary the, position. The, the, yeah, the do, <laughs> yeah, let's not be rude. Yeah. Then the doing good um, uh, carried on and stayed with you. Um, when you think... The other things you mentioned is that you mentioned a couple of times is that you were working class, which yeah. obviously has a meaning. Um, how, how has that route affected the doing good or the entrepreneurialism or any That's other part great, of... Great question. So... Um, I, I think that he has, as, as I've become more middle class in my income and, you know, where I hang out, and, you know, my brother's a brickie, all the men in my, that side of my family are sort of uh, manual labourers, and I've become a sort of you know, middle class, well-paid um, business person over the years. Um, I think that the, my upbringing has, uh, you, has helped me have a bit of distance all the time from the milieus that I've been in, mm. and sort of not quite fully belonging to it i write in the book about imposter syndrome i'm not sure how, how i think i have some of that still uh, but i see it as a sort of positive thing that in the businesses i've been involved in that i've created all the various things i've done in my life there's always been a little bit of well you don't quite belong here liam do mm. you and i still have that i sit in room you know oak panel boardrooms these days with you know expensively educated uh, upper middle class men mm. um, now involved in venture capital and private equity and that kind of thing and I, I, even though I can hold my own with them and, and and more there's still a little bit of me that is mm. you don't quite belong here Liam 
do you? And, 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 and that I think that is rooted um, in that. And I think that that has given me, uh, particularly when I work with entrepreneurs and others that maybe feel a bit on the outside, has given me a an insight into that and, and I think has attracted to me the sorts of people that I mentor right. now who I think sense in me that, you know, I've, I am a little bit on the outside and I think it's rooted in that. And that used to be a problem for me, actually, that feeling on the outside and not being... Um, uh, uh, a a proper businessman because of the background that I've had but now I kind of see it as a sort of uh, a gift actually to be empathetic to those who also may feel on the outside and of course businessmen are laborers and manual you know people have their own business it might be a very small business we might call it manual it's still a business I think the other thing you mentioned a couple of times you've used the seminary as an example and you've used college as an example and did you finish a uh, yes, I fin- I, yeah, I finished um, uh, uh, college, got a 2-2 uh, in English and theology. So you did finish? I, I okay. did finish, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you left still a man with a calling to do good, uh, a girlfriend, maybe a wife by then, a degree. Yeah. Um, and then uh, what happened then? So, so into, take us on, complete the journey to right. becoming the social entrepreneur. Yeah, so I um, uh, went to see a uh, careers counsellor at college who said I should become an accountant. So I, kept, I left that meeting. Imaginative of them. I imagine, but, you know, who knows? There are some great accountants in the world. Some have saved me in my time, I have to say. Uh, anyway, I came out and I was sitting in the, uh, uh, in the foyer of this uh, university building, having a cigarette, and I looked up at the notice board and there was this poster advertising to recruit young graduates to come to northern British Columbia in Canada to teach in the Catholic school system there. It was a very, very shrewd Irish bishop who was recruiting very cheap labour to come over. So we went to uh, British Columbia for two years, and there I got fairly radicalised. There were lots of people from the Catholic worker movement and sort of very, very well-organised social movements, particularly in the States. And that really opened my eyes to how I could make a difference in the world. Uh, and w- when you say radicalised, that's implying a political radicalisation. Was, yeah. so was this a very left-leaning organisation? It was, yeah. yeah. The Catholic worker, very much. Uh, yeah. Dorothy Day was uh, um, uh, came up with the Communist Party in America, but then adopted fairly interestingly radical politics, but quite a conservative uh, theology. And I was very, very touched and moved and inspired by the Catholic worker movement and could see there a very practical way of making real my desire to make some difference in the world. Um, we came back uh, to uh, the UK because Maggie's dad wasn't very well in 84 and, and I ended up in Liverpool. I got a job in Liverpool with the Archdiocese there as a community organiser and was able to put into practice some of these sort of community building skills, social activist group organising um, activities. One of the things that I had to do there was host visitors from overseas if they weren't important enough for the archbishop Derek warlock um who was an interesting man but and my boss if it wasn't an archbishop or a cardinal or a government uh, leader he'd push him down the corridor to me so i got to see some amazing people from el salvador the philippines and south africa so this is the 80s now where south africa is coming to the the sort of tipping point of uh, apartheid, and hosted some amazing people from South Africa who said, oh, you must come and see what we're doing. And so through uh, an amazing organisation created by a man called Bayez Nadia, who would become very influential in the uh, negotiations between the ANC and the National Party in the mid-90s, got to go to South Africa for the first time in 87 and just thought, "I I have got to work on this full time. I have to do 
something about this. So uh, came back, got a job with a, an organisation that was basically a front for the ANC. So a lot of sort of rabble-rousing and speaking at events and fundraising. And that brought me back to South Africa a few times, bringing cash back to unions and uh, youth organisations. Um, Maggie fell pregnant with our second kid, Connor, and said, well, you know, all this travelling where you disappear for weeks on end um, and I don't know where you are and what's going on. All I see on the TV is South Africa on fire and maybe maybe you should think about doing something else now we've got two kids. So then I moved into uh, uh, homelessness and I opened um, homeless shelters and day centres and feeding places for homeless people around the northwest um, and Northern Ireland. And we had more money than we know what to do with. The organisation was called Crisis. It's still going. Um, and we were brilliant fundraisers. And we literally had more money than we could give away to single homeless projects. So the trustee said to us, why don't you go out there and find some interesting projects that we can get behind that can address homelessness at some scale and could be financially sustainable. Mm. So I went out, I convened all of these events all around the north and ended up going to join an organisation in Liverpool called the Furniture Resource Centre with two other young men in their early 30s, as I was then. Um, and uh, we said, there's got to be a better way of creating work for unemployed scousers and getting furniture into the homes of very very impoverished families. Why don't we start creating businesses that do this? And that's how we then started using the language of social enterprise, social entrepreneur. 1997, Blair gets elected, and this whole narrative about the third way social entrepreneurship happened. And we sat there in Liverpool and said, we should be part of that. So it was then I sort of started to sort of identify as a social entrepreneur. Brilliant. I, I want to understand something else in this journey. So I, you, you talked about, again, we've talked about the religion, we've talked about this working class boy, we've talked about the chip on the shoulder. Yeah. You've then gone around the world helping chips, these people. Two, very evenly Very balanced. big chips, yeah, yeah. but nice size ones. Yeah, yeah, nice size ones. And then, and then you've got two children. Yeah. Um, at no point in this narrative so far have you any, mentioned any self-motivation, which, you know, you needed money because... You, I'm assuming you, there was yeah. no money in the family, so yeah, you needed yeah. an income. Were you at any point at this process thinking about yourself and and money for yourself, a mortgage, no. a home, a kid? Why, 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 why not? Was, it was never important to me. Uh, 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 it was never important to me and uh, uh, Maggie. Not to say that I, I knew I needed to earn money and I knew I needed to uh, you know pay the bills and uh, look after the kids and so on, but not remotely driven by I have to earn lots of money here. Not Not at all. Um, and the, the, the issue of motivation I've thought about a lot actually over the years and I've written about, about it in the book as well and I think a big motivation for what I was doing alongside the genuine I want to make a difference uh, in the world and I want to, uh, uh, I want to, I want to be of use um, and I want to support my family was um, to be seen particularly by my absent father who abandoned me when I was young there's no doubt about that in my mind that uh, now that that was part of mm. it that if i had some visibility and was doing some good there was a bit of hey look at me dad look what look what you're missing mm. uh, when you left us and so you know the older i've got the clearer that has become to me so i'd like to come back to that in a little while this this um this man who developed to the point where he saw this social entrepreneur idea and world and 
you know, on maybe at least one level, you became a prototype for that sort of person. You didn't yeah. know it. You were maybe unknowing because the term perhaps wasn't popularised yeah. then. It is now. So before we go into this, so can you just define what a social entrepreneur is for yeah. me? I, I think I know what an entrepreneur is. I yeah. think I know what a socialist is or being sociable is. But yeah. what is a social entrepreneur? So for me, a social entrepreneur is someone who brings the same ability to mobilise capital, energy, create sustainable business models but explicitly to address a social or environmental challenge so all of the businesses i've been i've either led invested in or um, created have been not created to primarily let's make some money let's create a brand not that's never been the driver all those those things are important it has been how do we solve this particular social problem and, so, uh, so how uh, is that different from uh, any company that identifies a social need? I'm not talking about Rolls Royces, <laughs> but it might be just cheaper trainers or jeans or more ethically sourced food. Or well, how so, is it any different? So, from if, if we if you'd asked me this question um, when I it was in my twenties and thirties, I would have been very dogmatic about. Well, actually, you know, there are the goodies and the baddies. There are the goodies, us who are called social entrepreneurs who do all this great stuff and then there are the baddies over there in these uh, in these businesses today i'm much more agnostic well i'm totally agnostic about all of that and the people i mentor the companies i work with the the, the ownership model the business model are, are irrelevant for me it's about the impact that they have and one of the most exciting things that i've seen saying i don't know the last 10 years certainly the last 20 years have been more and more people in uh, what you might call mainstream businesses, thinking actually we need to think about how we do our business has a reduces its impact to the world and actually increases the social good in the world too. Mm. And so I uh, have left behind all that sort of um, th- that dogma really. And in the book and in the work that I do, um, I, you know, wh- what you call yourself, I'm not interested in um, anymore. What I'm interested in is the degree to which you and also the business that you have is going to make the world better or not. And, and that's so, really urgent now. So and that, and that could be with or without a profit motive. That could be as a charity. Correct. Or a yeah, so the people company. I mentor are, go from, I mean, our first guest next week, Math Potts, yeah. um, uh, would, he, he has always worked in the non-profit and public sector. Yeah. Well, he wouldn't know one end of a business from another. Um, but I think he's doing some amazing stuff in the world. I also mentor the chief of staff of Jaguar Land Rover, who has who has decided that his career is in this shift to a decarbon economy and believes that he can have a bigger impact at the top of a big company than he could in an NGO or a, mm. a, a smaller social enterprise. So mm. I think I think the challenge facing us, and this is why I'm interested in the whole massive small thing, is is how we connect the dots between all of those different sort of actors in different uh, sectors and industries and and in different sorts of organizations yeah. so we could we could look back to this period in your life where there were lots of social problems and there were resources available to solve them and as you just hinted that's still true today and i dare say will be true to some extent forever because society is always changing and change there's a new sets of problems for people do you, so is is this question and the link to massive small for you one about what's the best way to affect social change um or, or, or are there particular elements of social change that you would see yourself or your philosophy focusing in on? So is this a conversation around how do I do social change or how do I do, you know, better health care? 
I think for me, o- overall, it's the first one. How do we do social change? Yeah. And I, the uh, the funds that I'm involved that invest in uh, purpose-driven businesses and the people I mentor cover a huge range of um, activities. I personally, I'm interested in now in this stage of my life some particular things. I'm particularly interested in mental health. So one of the uh, companies that um, I have been deeply involved in is uh, a business called Together All, which is about um, uh, enabling peer-to-peer at a, uh, help or, or mental health at a population level become mainstream. I'm particularly interested in that. If you talk to me uh, in my 20s when I was in Liverpool, it was about employment and it was about uh, labelling those who were alienated from the or kept out of the labor market getting back in so again i've not i've never been driven by here's the one issue i'm going to solve in the world it's been more about the business models and being of use wherever i am at that particular point in my journey Mm. so let's then say i am one of these people that's interested in one issue yeah um i could come and people do come to you to get advice in terms of how to deal with that issue um, and again, as I think I've understood what you mean by a social enterprise, it's a social problem that I can create a solution around. That's the social entrepreneurism. Yeah. And, and as you said, the economic model is less important than actually just the solution happening. So that makes sense to me. And you've had a career now in working in social enterprise. You've written about it. You've talked about it extensively. You're well known for it. So I come to you now as a, a young person. Imagine. Imagine that. Imagine I'm a young I'm, person. My imagination's really good. So yeah. I'm seeing you yeah. full head of hair. Our producer here is a young person, so perhaps address, yeah, address yeah, yourself to him. Yeah. So you, you, you come to me or the producer comes to you and you say, I, this is a problem I want to solve. What's your first step in helping somebody to understand that problem? Maybe give an example or maybe talk generically, whatever's easier. Well, I think that the um, uh, that's not how I do it. So the way I, the, the way I, the way I do it, it's a great question, but I'm going to, but it's a really, it, it, it is an interesting question. So I now, in the mentoring I do, I don't give sector-specific advice. So Chris at Jaguar Land Rover, he doesn't come to me and say, um, we're opening this big uh, electric battery factory in Somerset, Liam, which they have, and uh, they're opening in a few years. How do I do that? That's, I don't know. <laughs> you can need a load of money and batteries. And somebody who knows about batteries. And some, and someone who knows about yeah. batteries, cars. So the mentor, mentoring I do these days is much more about... Um, so with Chris, it would, and he's talked publicly with me about this, so I'm not breaking any confidence here. With him, it wouldn't be the industry-specific question. It would be, I find myself in this senior leadership position and I'm struggling with it, or how do I do it properly, or how do I deal with all of these people around me who don't share the same values um, that I have. So the mentoring I do these days is much more about how to be a leader successfully or an entrepreneur successfully regardless of what context that you're in because i think there's some things that 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 apply across the board what i do do though in my mentoring is i may then know someone who knows about electric batteries very very well and i will connect you um, to that person Mm -hmm. so the mentoring i do is is both about sort of personal uh, leadership stuff as well as championing championing you and connecting you to capital or the expertise that you might need in order to be as good as possible at what you're doing. So don't come, don't come to me for specific sector advice or industry advice, but you can come to me for insight into leadership and support around that. So there are there are lots of 
business coaches and business leaders and business writers. They're sort of Loads pen of penny. Every magazine has three. Yeah, look on LinkedIn, um, there's LinkedIn, plenty of them. There's plenty of them. But I think the thing that, to me, distinguishes you is this social enterprise piece where you've spent a career in that. And I suppose what I was asking is, is you know, when somebody comes to you for help or when you conceive of an idea or you see somebody conceive of an idea, it's obviously rooted in a social problem. Yeah. So they're seeing something they don't like in society and yeah. something that they want to fix. So I'm just trying to get to that starting point, uh, a bit like with the massive small stuff that we talked about with Kelvin in the last episode. You you identify a big problem and then you start to solve it, break it down. What would be... So when you've, when you've, when you've worked with social entrepreneurs... Yeah. Um, and they're in that formulation phase, or they, yeah. well, how, how do you operate? I was, I, I'll give, let me give you a practical example. Yeah. So I had a young man come to see me. He bought the bought the book, got in touch with me. He's twenty five or six. He's had some personal experience himself of mental health struggles. Mm. Has seen that, um, and is an AI specialist, um, and had seen that I'm have invested in and sit on the board of a fairly well known, well known digital mental health business. Together, all he came to see me. So what what should I do? So there was a very practical industry specific thing i could do with him mm. which is well where do you want to be on the spectrum of the what's available to uh people when they're struggling with their mental health from um very light touch uh, therapy all the way through to you're in hospital you know in a padded cell on heavy duty drugs where do you think you want to be because a lot of the problems i see with failed attempts in that world particularly are people who want to solve everything so I spent two hours with this guy deciding, okay, where on that um, from here to here do you want to be? And once we've just, once you've decided that's where you want to be, uh, is it relevant what you've got to bring? And I think it, it really is. He's in AI and he's got some really, really, really great ideas. And then from there, we'll then talk about, well, what investors are out there that could uh, invest, be interested in investing in your business and also who are the specialists out there that you should be talking to now to not repeat mistakes other people have made and find champions and allies for you to scale your business quickly. So you're helping them to, at this stage, focus in on a specific area of work and then get the backing, financial and non-financial, yeah, to help them very much. develop And also to out. encourage them to not to both be very shrewd and smart about what they're doing, but also not to overthink it too much. Because I'm a big believer in, you know, a, a, a decent plan executed now is much better than a perfect plan that you sit around worrying about for six months and then you launch and it's uh, it's too late. And it's uh, one of the reasons I'm interested in the massive small thing and what Kelvin is talking about is this idea of how you combine massive ambition, and this guy has massive ambition, I want to bring AI to, 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 to help people in their mental health struggles. Um, massive ambition, but with um, by starting small and then building from there. You know, that relentless increment, incrementalism that, that um, uh, Kelvin talks about. One of the reasons I'm interested in doing this podcast with him is that some of that language is, is I find really helpful, actually. I've already started nicking some of it in the mentoring I'm sure and delighted. the investing that I do. Yeah, it's kind of, you know... Uh, creative uh, relocation um so so that's what i do is both help people identify okay where could you have the biggest effect um in a very complicated uh, um uh, uh, world full of people trying to solve this problem um where could, where are you best starting where can you get some money and where do you get some allies from mm. so 
I'm hearing the same thing, a common theme between you and Kelvin in this idea that there are big problems, but you start somewhere and you solve them incrementally. And I'm thinking that a lot of your work and your history borders or sits right bang in the middle of political agendas, whether it's education or health yeah, or defence, whatever sure. it might be, you're going to always sit close to political agendas, which yeah. many businesses don't, you know. Yeah, or, they, uh, and shy away from deliberately, yeah. But, but then the politician is expected to solve these big problems. Yeah. And typically with a big, simple policy statement and slogan. So when you think about how politicians seem to address these things with big ideas from the top down to you advising a social entrepreneur wannabe or working with people who've been doing it for years who are yeah. dealing with you know, incremental change, yeah. you can see how it's hard for a politician to say, I'm going to do this little thing and things are going to get better because the public doesn't buy that. But you can see why it's practical for somebody who's actually on the ground to start with something little and build it up. So how, how do you yeah. marry that relationship between the well, public, the, yeah, no, the politician I, and the reality? Yeah, and Calvin and I have talked a lot about this. And I think one of the things that I want to make clear uh, um, through the conversations we're going to have with people who are, we think, actually doing this massive small approach to organisation and, and movement building is it's not a sort of binary either or thing. And it's not saying unless you start with incremental growth and you you trial something you see it works you scale it doesn't mean that there's no room for policy makers absolutely not i mean i was uh, I, I spoke earlier about um when blair was elected in 97 and the whole narrative started to change about third way and social entrepreneurship and all of that uh, i was very involved in that uh, frank field who had been appointed as the the minister to think the unthinkable by um, tony blair came to Liverpool to look at what we were doing in trying to build uh, companies that put regeneration of cities like Liverpool at the heart of their um, activity. So, and we and got all the way into the cabinet office to talk about, you know, how we could do this, only to be told, actually, we didn't mean that unthinkable. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. we didn't get anywhere. But I think that what I hope that um, in, our, in our way, by creating a platform for some of the people that will be sitting across the table uh, from us is to help politicians see that actually it is a, it's a fault choice it's not either you know we're going to level up the entire north of england in the next five to ten years well you're not are you and what does, what does that mean and it's not simply well that all they will have loads of these unconnected little projects all over the place that don't amount to anything it's you you achieve big things by saying okay we look at the stuff that you're doing there. Let's do 20 of those. And let's make those 20 work rather than failing to do 200,000, which is so often what happens with, with policy. And I think that one of the, the interesting developments that we need to see in politics is that space between the incrementalist and the kind of grand visionary, because we need people in politics to make things happen. And they need to happen at scale if particularly climate change is to be dealt with. And often, so it's, there's a tension there, and there's a sort of uh, um, there's some contradictions in some way. But I, I have seen so often big grand schemes not work, mm. and I have seen great small things not scale. Mm. And I'm really interested now, as an investor and a mentor, and all the other things that I try and do, is how do you bring those together? Mm. And hopefully, by platforming some of the stories of people who have got things to quite big scale by taking a massive small approach to things um, can influence so when we staying with the, the politicians and the, the political environment that will best enable yeah. this sort of social change politicians are lawmakers in this country they make our laws um, they also um, develop 
rules, legislation, policies, procedures that we must fulfil in terms of enacting those laws. So when you think about the things you've wanted to do, has the law, has the policy helped those things? Or or does it feel like you're dealing with, and I'm not feeding you here because I don't yeah. know your point of view, but does it feel like it's a lot of red tape to do something you you would do sensibly anyway. So I'm just trying to understand how much does the political legal framework, and by legal I mean the broadest sense of all the rules and regulations, yeah. how, how much does that help versus hinder these social entrepreneurs? I think um, I think the, the, the part of the, the, the tension is when you make a law, it, it, it applies to everything and often doesn't cover uh, uh, as much as it should. The entrepreneur comes on and spots an uncovered need and then starts to do something and then finds that actually the law that was put in place or the regulation or the funding stream or whatever it is gets in the way because that particular case hasn't been considered. And so I think often social entrepreneurs that are trying to deal with issues that haven't been solved by the public sector or the mainstream private sector inevitably run up against systems that are, they have to, they're swimming against the tide, I guess. Mm. Um, and I've had that a, a lot. Um I mean, an example, when we were in Liverpool, we used to spend millions of uh, European uh, social fund money. Merseyside was an objective one area in the European Union and there was lots of money coming in. The way it was structured was you got the money in arrears, you got it months after you'd spent it, you had to do the most unbelievably anally retentive um, floppy disks. Do you remember floppy disks? You had to fill in literally piles of them in an environment where speed creativity, innovation was what was called for. And so you had a system built, and you understand why it was built like that, to stop um, fraud, although it didn't really stop a lot of fraud, to stop fraud. But it also unintentionally stopped innovation and creativity and left the field often to large organisations that were able to handle the cash flow hit of not getting your money back for, for six months. And so I've spent a lot of time uh, with policymakers, sort of saying, well, you know, how can we create uh, regeneration funding, for example, that can be as nimble and quick as entrepreneurs are able to be in addressing uh, problems? But there's always going to be a lag, um, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why social entrepreneurs, as well as uh, any sort of innovator, needs some pa- needs to combine patience with you know urgency, getting pissed off with things, but also understanding that you know it's going to take a while for these large um, state institutions to catch up. So I'm, Health I'm, service being being one of them and uh, involved in a couple of businesses that are selling services into the NHS, that's a very real thing every day of the week for us. So, so would you say in balance that the checks that our laws provide for us um, and the entrepreneurial spirit that you want people to operate, it feels about right in most of the business you've worked with I think it's 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 made. To, I think entrepreneurs and innovators are good at making whatever system they've got work for them, and then you become used to. Well, it's it's a bit shit, yeah. but we can make it work uh, for ourselves. And I wish it was um, a bit better. Um, but you know, things like EIS, for example, the, the you know to, the tax break to encourage people um, to invest money. I think that's a good example of how the government did listen to how you can get behind entrepreneurs rather than constantly um, uh, 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 fighting the system, as it were. I I think the balance will never be completely right, Um, but I think that we need, whatever side of the table you sit on, 
you've got to stay engaged in that discussion to get it ever more right Mm. so uh, again i want to go back now to your sort of 19 20 21 year old self this sort of i'm sort of seeing as this sort of you know almost evangelical christian socialist you want to change the world for all the right reasons yeah. and during the whole conversation you still haven't talked about whether this whole thing has enriched you or whether that's a good thing or not but i want to go from that person to you today would you just let little liam I, I, i'm sure you were six foot three then so would, would, would little liam would you just say you don't need my advice off you go let's see where this takes you or, or would you have things that you would now say to him based upon having worked for a long time in this world um solved a bunch of problems failed i'm sure to solve other problems yeah would you would you have anything different to say to him would you say just go and be a lawyer you got ice uh, <laughs> accountant or accountant <laughs> that's right i get asked this a lot this is the kind of um question you always get asked on panels isn't it if you could advise your younger self yeah. what would you say well i know what my younger self would say to you know old bald granddad turning it. it would be like piss off you know i i, I know what i'm doing because i was quite a, a, a zealot in my 20s and i think people in their 20s should be zealots and should be you know driven and really wanting to make um, a change in the world some of the things so I, I i've kept a journal since i was 20 so little liam has been writing down his shallow thoughts in a pile of books for hundreds of years for hundreds of years i have to blow this it's like parchment (laughs) so it's like the the dead sea scrolls looking back at my old (laughs) journals and um when i look back at that there's a couple of things that really really strike me one of them what a sanctimonious little twerp i was a lot of the time without a doubt Uh, but the other thing was that often the things that seemed so important at the time oh my god you know this this is really really important actually weren't Mm. and so i would say to my younger self and also to and i say this to young entrepreneurs you know try not to get too anxious about what's going on in front of you right now because actually it's probably not the most important thing and you won't know that until you to till you look back um i wish that i had more deliberately uh created time for my mental health and my relationship you know i didn't i think i behaved as if those things weren't the most important things and they are um i was i was a reasonable husband i wasn't i don't think i was a brilliant husband um in my uh 20s i mean i was a kid when i married um maggie but that would be the advice i would give to to my um younger self um and i think the other thing would be about people the biggest mistakes i've made in my career which have cost untold amounts of money with compromise agreements ndas all of that is to be a bit more i wish i'd been a bit more ruthless um in protecting the culture of the organizations that i was in when there were people that i knew in my heart of hearts i should have got rid of Mm. and thought i can love them train them support them coach them when actually i should have uh been a bit more uh, ruthless in that regard interesting because again I, i'm going to t- sort of go back to to little liam maybe we should call him young liam because yeah, young you liam. are lovely you are lovely liam um, lovely liam yeah uh, lovely young liam who had <laughs> was wanting to prove something to his absent father yeah who so. said had a couple of big even sized but big chips and on, on i was very yeah shoulder. yeah very balanced does, young does man. that and you, and you talk about this um uh, this idealism growing into what I what sounds like a more rounded view of you know getting stuff done and yeah. dealing with people who who aren't going to be helpful and 
you know, working hard with the ones that are going to be helpful yeah. and using your judgment. So, so as you sit now and think, do you, do you, do, are you still trying to prove something to your dad? Are those chips still there? Is Or you, do you feel sort of satisfied with old Liam? <laughs> Lovely old Liam. My father died um, uh, six weeks ago. Right. So my father left us when I was a small boy uh, in Ireland, went off to the States and was supposed to bring us over and disappeared. Right. Uh, and I found him when I was 40 and went to, went to see him. Um, uh, with his family over there, it's another story. Um, um, and I had it was what it was one of those, you know, that word, that American closure. Yeah, I have, have experienced that with my father, and I spent a lot of time talking to this man, sitting literally like this across a small table from him, looking at him, thinking, "Jesus, that's my father," and he's horrible. <laughs> Really horrible man, um, and I had spent a lot of all my childhood and a lot of my young adulthood um, feeling sorry for myself that I didn't have a dad. Like really feeling sorry for me, being really envious of other people and their dads. Mm. You know, and um, I even had a. Do you want to hear the lie I told people when they asked yes. me about my dad? Uh, yes, I like to hear lies. So when, yeah, so when people would say to me when I was a boy, uh, I got a bit of bullying for it, but I was able to handled myself but still got bullied for it um oh you haven't got a dad where's your dad and i said oh my dad went to america but he's dead now because he got recruited into the war and killed in vietnam oh. i know oh. it's quite a creative oh, lie yeah, but yeah. still it's a bit oh when i even hear myself say it now yeah. yeah anyway fast forward to when i'm nearly 40 sitting opposite this man and i hear about his abusive alcoholic beating of the children that you had over there etc etc i suddenly wrote jesus no I, I had a lucky escape that's what i had yeah you dodged that vietnam i dodged bullet. that vietnam uh I, I dodged that um situation so with that um I, I i i don't have that anymore and because of that and in large part because of maggie uh, my wife my ambition in life was not to be my father or more positively to be a much better man and father and i think i achieve that and now my goal is to be um, a really good grandfather mm. um and uh and on the subject of fathers i write about this in the book i say show me a male social entrepreneur and i'll show you a man with daddy issues <laughs> uh, i'm telling you uh, maybe i just uh, i select they just see this in me here's this yeah. guy who didn't have a dad and i you know the number of entrepreneurs innovators that i speak to that have some sort of trauma in their background, some sort of stuff that's going on that has driven them to want to it's make their mark. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You yeah. know, and I think there's absolutely uh, uh, no doubt about it. And I've done a bit of therapy, and you know, I, I know some some friends of mine are, are are really great sort of therapists, and we've talked about it. Is that there is no doubt that my um, wanting to fix the world was a big part about me wanting to fix myself. No doubt about that. So no that, doubt about and, and that I think helps in the mentoring that I do because you know there is a bit that sort of borders counseling and therapy with some of the entrepreneurs that I work with. I, I'm sure. So that I think that probably is a quite a nice way of bringing you to perhaps the last question. Um, as the gloves off mentor, I think, yeah. I think I can see why you're the gloves off mentor now because you don't yeah. really hold back very much, but in a positive way. When you when you meet somebody, or, or or how would you describe somebody? Your maybe there isn't one, but try anyway. Your ideal social entrepreneur. What what, what characteristics does that person need to have? What, what's the sort of person you would look at and say, yes, I, I I 
I can make you, you're going to yeah. be great and I can make you a little yeah. bit greater. Well, should I tell you what I look for? Yeah. When someone says, get in says, Liam, I'd love to talk to you about you mentoring yeah. me. I look for, at very basically, well, do I like them? Yeah. Do, do, is, is there a connection? And, and sometimes uh, um, there isn't. Um, but really, are they, what is their why? What is the thing that is driving them? Mm. Are they clear about that? Mm. Um uh, that that's really really important. And if there's a kind of well, I, if there's a lot of confusion about that, or there's the wrong motivation, then I tend not to. Um, I, I'll talk to them about it and probably not work with them. But looking forward, do they understand what their motivation is sufficiently uh, for me to be able to work with them? Are they clear about what the issue is they're trying to address? So this guy I was talking about earlier, you know, I, I want to I want to make a difference in the world to people struggling with their mental health. Well, great. Specifically, what? Mm. I, I look for that and also do they have the sort of resilience and the personality that's going to be able to deal with hearing no a lot more than they hear yes um, whatever they create being probably not exactly what they had in mind at the at the beginning because life tends to do that so do they have that mix of um, characteristics personality that I think is what it takes in order to achieve something um, good in the world Mm. And 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 do I like them? And do they like me? Because I'm not for everybody. And the world will always need these people because the I world so. won't ever have perfect government and perfect taxation that solves every social. We're always going to need these sorts of people. Well, I think we always need them, and I think we need them particularly now. I mean, one of the things that um, so I, I grew up in the seventies. I was a kid. I was ten in uh, 1971. So I was sort of my adolescence and very early manhood was in the seventies. And we look back on the 70s now as, oh, my God, what a terrible time that was. You know, strikes and um, blackouts and uh, uh, et cetera. However, uh, inequality was less than it is today. The gap between mm -hmm. those that have stuff and those that don't is way bigger than it was um, uh, 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 today. Uh, the, the, a lot of the services that are available to people are worse today than they were then. And then you get to climate change and you look at what, you know mm. what is happening now is literally before i came here to talk to you listening to uh the radio and listening to someone from the eu somewhere in southern italy saying the number of young kids coming over on boats is now reaching just uh, uh, epidemic levels driven out by poverty and parts of the world now becoming literally uninhabitable mm. because of the heat of the place to do with climate change so the need for change makers people willing to come up with new ideas get stuck in has never been greater mm. which is both exciting and also a bit scary yeah and as a as a, a historian it's easy and particularly an economic historian it's easy to look at the problems we have today it's quite hard to find parallels to them where you've got populations the size we have income disparities the size we have climate changes the nature we have resource shortages like we have but also technologies and intelligences that we've never had before yeah might, so you, you can be black you can be dark or light about yeah, this and yeah and as a catholic background you tend to go to the dark, dark yeah. Yeah, we're all going to die Liam, and we're all going to hell um no i think that's absolutely right but and you, you need at, people to harness the light to get us through the dark and that's what exactly and i think and, you know and I, and I hope that with the, the the these stories these massive small stories that we're going to you know highlight through this podcast I think part of it is bringing some light into that darkness. And we hope that 
people listening to this you know, all over the world who are thinking, shit, this is, you know, we're really up against it here, will be insp- not only inspired by, but also be able to learn from some of the people that we're going to, to talk to. Because you talked about technology, it's just amazing. I mean, I, I had a business for 10 years and we created it with iPhones and, um, and Apple Macs. Mm. You know, and I compare when I was in Liverpool, the amount of money we spent on, you know, technology... You have fax machines the size of phone boxes. And, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, know you, 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 you were there. So there's a, I think that the speed with which you can build something because of the technology and the connectivity that there is nowadays, I think can be a, a massive force for good. We are enabled today, that's for sure. By we certainly are. It's a question of how we use it. Well, look, Liam, I think that's quite a nice note to end on. Um, thank you very much. Well, thank you. That uh, was really interesting. You, you, you asked me some questions I've never been asked before. Oh, well, I'm delighted yeah. to hear it. I wish I'd done a few more. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sorry for the cliche. Well, maybe, ones. Well, maybe happy you back. I'll try harder. That was, that was great fun and really enjoyable. And I think, again, just a plug for the Massive Small podcast series and for your book, um, How to Lead with Purpose. Yeah, thank um, you. And I'm sure people will look it up after hearing this. And, you know, and, and uh, our first guest in, in the next podcast is Math Potts. Uh, who is a really interesting guy who literally goes around the country uh, with a sofa, puts it outside in in areas where there's high degrees of isolation and just sits there and see who turns up. And he used to run Tony Blair's entire homelessness strategy. And that journey from massive uh, interventions to these amazing small interventions that he's making in the lives of isolated and lonely people is is very inspiring. Uh, a bit weird, um, and he's also a great jazz musician uh, who's written the uh, uh, the theme tune for this podcast. So he's a very appreciate first guest for, in our preview. next podcast. Great preview. Thanks, Liam.